Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. During this second episode in a two-part series, uh, we're focusing on a recent Materials Week webinar for The Ohio State Institute for Materials Research. Uh, the second segment focuses on a, a panel reacting to Ned Hill's presentation on lies, damn lies, and consultants, what manufacturing and supply chain leaders need to know about digital manufacturing, Industry 4.0, and the Internet of Things. A special thanks goes to the Institute for Materials Research for hosting this forum, and especially Executive Director Steve Ringel and Director of Innovation Jay Sayer. So uh, Ned said a couple of things that were that were pretty important in this whole conversation. Well, he said a ton of things that were very important for the conversation. Uh, for what I wanted to specifically talk about, the one of the points he brought up was that a lot of the equipment that's still being used today was manufactured in the 40s and 50s. That, um, that, that contributes to part of the uh, global competitive, competitiveness issue we're seeing here in the US because as the emerging markets come in in other countries, they don't have 40 and 50 year old or 60 year old equipment that they're dealing with. They're purchasing new and by default, new equipment has more sensors or it's designed to include sensors or to have sensors installed later. Um, <clears throat> just as some some basic numbers, if we look at milling machines, so whether you're talking CNC or manual mills, in the US, we, we procure around 10,000 milling machines per year. And that number is relatively flat year over year. We, we're only 20 to 40%, depending on where you read the numbers from, of the milling machines purchased per year relative to India and China. So the, the, the market is growing and where most of the growth is at they're not only not only bringing new equipment on that's competitive with what we have here in the states, but they're bringing new equipment on that has all the sensors and is enabled for OT 5.0 already as part of it. Uh, the uh, I think the thing we need to we need to continue to think about is when we as we go to implement these newer technologies and we're looking at sensors and data acquisition and improving our processes why do we want to do that why are we why are we inclined to make those investments it's usually to improve productivity uh, reduce unanticipated downtime reduce non-conforming materials or parts the the equipment we're using doesn't necessarily contribute to those one way or the other. It's our ability to understand how the equipment's behaving and how the tools we're using are behaving and how the humans are interacting with it. So we, I feel like we get in the conversation many times about should we replace this piece of equipment because it's old and we can get new technology on top of it or should we, and then the counterpoint is, or we continue as we are. And I, I don't believe that the, it should be one or the other. I think there's there's a middle step, and it's something we're working on pretty actively here in the center. Uh, that middle step is is look at the things that we're trying to improve upon and find non-intrusive sensor applications that get us get us data so we can make better decisions in the future without having to kind of go from zero to a thousand right out of the gate. Uh, there's been several papers. I think MIT did a really good 
paper and kind of ebook a few years ago on non-intrusive sensors. The, the, the way you would think about it is instead of trying to embed sensors into the motors and into the tooling and near the, uh, near the bearings or what have you, use clamp-on, use things that give you like a secondary measure for vibration or, or you're reading current to look at motor load and it's just a clamp-on sensor. Uh, the, other, the other tool that we've been using pretty actively here in the center, which I'm, I'm super excited about, is vision systems. So we, we all are aware of what vision systems can do for tracking parts and maneuvering parts on pallets and whatnot. You can also take a very low cost web camera and have it look at a, a temperature gauge or a pressure gauge or monitor how many times the machine operator has to change the tooling out or clean the tip of a welder. Those, those types of applications are very low cost to install. They're easy to maintain and it instantly digitizes all your data without impacting any of your equipment or creating a new maintenance thing you have to deal with. Uh, the other thing that's, that's an opportunity for us is to, to not jump right to a SCADA system. Like we can, we can drive towards SCADA if we have legacy systems, but we can use, use tools like PTC ThingWorks to collect, organize, and visualize the data so that when we move towards more supervisory control and data acquisition systems that are gonna manage the entire facility, before we take that step, we at least know what data is useful and uh, how we're gonna how we're gonna most appropriately use it and apply it on the systems we buy tomorrow. See, Nate, so, we're gonna have to move on to the next yep. panelist. So, do you want a, a concluding comment? Uh, I was just gonna kind of agree with one of the last things you said is that the the path forward, especially for legacy equipment, is eat the elephant one bite at a time. Take, take little pieces, things that we can manage. We can do that with secondary sensors and controls. Thank you. Uh, second panelist is John Gray. John is a professor in the Fisher College of Business. Um, he's also uh, one of the lead researchers at the Center for Operations Excellence, uh, which uh, is specializes on working with middle market firms. And um, I, I could say that John, uh, with uh, along with, with um, uh, Sue Helper up at Case Western Reserve University is turning into one of the thought leaders about the future of supply chain. So John, it's all yours. Thank you, Ned, appreciate it. Um, and I just have a few minutes to make a few comments. I think the main reason I'm here is I did uh, a report for CAPS Research on emerging technologies and supply management a couple of years ago. Correct. It was focused on procurement and supply management, but very similar. And so I just wanna um, say the, uh, some things from Ned's uh, presentation, I just wanna emphasize business case, that's what we came through with every every um, buddy we interviewed. You know, understand the business case, make the business case. And to Ned's point, it doesn't have to always be just cost reduction, quality improvement, flexibility improvement. It also might be, you know, survive, uh, continue, you know, do something that that you, you think your competitors are doing. Uh, also emphasizing that um, we have some, we heard some uh, horror stories of people who automated uh, ununderstood processes they didn't fully understand or that were bad processes, and then they basically sped up the errors, if you will. Um, so that's just want to reemphasize that consultants was in uh, Ned's title. I didn't talk about him too much, but I'm going to spend my couple minutes talking about consultants and the good and the bad and, and really more in the supply management side, but with emerging technologies. Um, first, the good that we found is the consultants, uh, you know, do this across a bunch of organizations. So they have, they're able to bring that knowledge in and in supply management. They'll actually bring aggregate data in and be able to do things that an individual organization could never do uh, pooling say purchasing data from the 100 hospitals they've worked with 
will allow them to, they'll use artificial intelligence to automatically classify, say, your purchasing data. Um, and that's, that's a use of artificial intelligence and supply management. Also, they'll use analytics to maybe see what price you're paying uh, and knowing what other hospitals are paying for similar price to identify opportunities. So those things are really hard to do without the aggregate data and the consultants are able to aggregate uh, anonymized data and kind of give you insights in, in ways that are very difficult, especially for small firms to get on their own. Having said that, um, we saw, I've seen a lot of consultants come in with the marketing hype and here's all these things this stuff can do. And if you talk to them enough, um, you know, a lot of them don't even know exactly what's going on and they certainly don't know your operation well enough to make, uh, to make the claims they're making that they can happen because as Ned pointed out, you have to have so much in place before you can be able to even think about say, you know, predictive analytics really running your shop or, 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 or something like that. And so I've seen a lot of consultants come with really fancy charts and graphs, um, and big words and things that most people don't understand. And if you keep digging and asking questions, um, you may find they don't really know how to get from point A to point B necessarily in your organization. So I think the, the title of this is, is certainly a cautionary tale, but consultants can do a lot with the aggregate uh, data and information that they get from dealing with multiple organizations. So mostly at just Ned, Ned's report and my report, probably very, a lot of very similar arguments, it seems. Thank you, John. And, and I, I think you hit the point on consultants right on, um, it, it, except those consultants that work the way you do it are very large firms with very big hurdle rates and the single shingles scare the living hell out of me right now. Um, the good thing is uh, the, Ohio, the Manufacturing Extension Partnership is trying to train up their engineers uh, to get to that point. Um, yeah, but we, and, and, and I, I, I agree that the work that you that you did um, two years ago was is still at the cutting edge. So thank you for that work. Our, our next panelist is Farhang Bagrat. Uh, he is the he's professor and chair at the um, Industrial Systems Department in the College of Engineering, and he's one of the uh, thought leaders within the Institute for Materials Research. So Farhang. Uh, Go forth. We, we expect you to talk somewhere on the ITOT interface, I believe. Absolutely. Thank you, Ned. I think you unpacked quite a bit of uh, information in here that is just incredible. Um, one of the things that I guess I just wanted to, uh, to, you know, to talk about a little bit within the next couple of minutes is the, the difficulty in, in the integration, as, as you mentioned, you know, between your equipment and, and the technology, uh, IOTs and, 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 you know, basically getting to the point that you can uh, have the industry 5.0, if you will, or OT 5.0, um, that difficulty itself is going to make it very difficult for small businesses and medium-sized businesses. You know, the cost associated with that would be uh, prohibitive, at least at the very beginning, until there is going to be some uh, standardized, you know, systems that can be, you know, adopted by the smaller businesses. Um, the other thing I just wanted to also mention is beside the cost of automation for small businesses would be the, uh, the increased use of the energy. I don't know whether that was actually uh, pointed out or not. As, as the automation uh, continues in the future, uh, the cost of energy to, to supply all of these things is going to become also very competitive. And there should be a lot of optimization and distribution of those energy that will require uh, in-depth uh, research and analysis. And I think um, supply chain would be 
another thing that would be very disruptive as well. And I think that uh, by the time we get to the point that we will have the OT 5.0 in the uh, distant future, there are a lot of things that needs to be unpacked and, and, and studied. And I think um, this is going to be the, one of the biggest challenges that we will be faced to, uh, to be able to integrate this into uh, small and, and to very large, uh, basically, enterprises. Um, I guess, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, comment on things that, uh, as I said, this is very large subject. And um, I'm going to stop here. And if there are specific questions, I will be happy to answer. But there's a lot to be unpacked here. Well, thank you, Barhang. That was great. And, and it's great seeing you again. This is a really difficult thing. We're seeing colleagues for the first time in a year. Um, so I, I thank IMR for, for that possibility as well. Um, there, there's a the question came from uh, Thailand Altan uh, on through, through uh, the Q&A function. Um, and he sets up Catherine Kelly's presentation fabulously. Um, Catherine has been introduced, she is, she is my colleague and she's the executive director of the Ohio Manufacturing Institute. Uh, most importantly, she's leading the team with professor, uh, with, with uh, leading a, a team around uh, establishing the Bachelor of Science in Engineering Technology. Uh, and I'll let her describe that. Um, and, but I believe Catherine is going to be mostly talking about kind of these four workforce challenges that we lay out in the presentation. Uh, there are more slides that we have in the appendix to the presentation, uh, the people who are dialing in can uh, get a hold of when they can download the, download the slides. Um, Catherine, it's all yours. All right, thanks, Ned. And, and you would think uh, working with Ned that I would have the advantage of some uh, more time to respond, but it's, it's always an adventure with him. So um, I wanted to start with the takeaways since uh, we have limited time. Um, you know, I, I, what we're, we're gathering and the research we've been conducting on this is that uh, the fully integrated digital manufacturing plant requires technology skills beyond what is being taught today. I think we're, we've got pieces and parts of it, uh, you know, but uh, they and, and we also, as Nin mentioned, there's a distinction that should be made among the immediate needs for entry and mid-level workers and the looming and important skills that the new operating technology environment must attain. Uh, but even with the push for the new technology skills, uh, those hands-on foundational skills, the mills, the lathes, the metal cutting, the drills are still required uh, in both today's and tomorrow's industry. Uh, so our graduates will uh, enter into a manufacturing ecosystem predicted to not look like it does now. So what skills should we be preparing for them to master? You know, how can they lead firms, especially the small and mid-sized uh, level firms through this digital transformation? Uh, so I think defining a new manufacturing educational path for the next generation of careers is going to require a culture change, uh, not only among manufacturers and manufacturing plants, but also educational providers. Uh, and we talked uh, about four different uh, types of, uh, of workers. You have the semi-skilled, those are the modestly paid uh, machine tenders. They're, they're trained within a short period of time. Uh, they show up, uh, follow instructions, or they tend to automated systems. We 
have seen that as more of a revolving door. You know, a lot of manufacturers employ temp agencies to populate uh, that level, or it, it is becoming increasingly automated. And then we have skilled machinists. Those are the traditional occupations that uh, will still form uh, an, a niche, you know, uh, have its own place in manufacturing for come, you know, we're, we're talking about toll and die. Uh, and then we have that industrial maintenance technician uh, or what in Europe, you know, they call megatronics. And that keeps the integrated production line up and going. Uh, you know, the, the difference is that, that the industrial maintenance technicians are focused on the production process. They're trained in mechanical, electrical and fluids. Uh, they get certifications by equipment providers, uh, you know, and they move up the, the ranks. They, they, they usually have, you know, the uh, career and technical center training, some community college, and, and there are a few uh, bachelor's degree in there. Uh, ultimately, you know, we're focusing on the factory leader and production manager, you know, some, those who are broadly trained engineering technologists, they work with and they make decisions about these advanced technologies and they integrate solutions on the factory floors. And they, so they also need uh, the soft skills and the business sense. So, you know, this is a group that needs to have that knowledge of the plant. Uh, and this is becoming increasingly valuable in the manufacturing 5.0 environment. Uh, so I think we need both right now. I think similar to what Nate mentioned about in terms of equipment, you know, our machines, we need the immediate urgent needs in the traditional occupations, but we also need to look at the important skills at the plant leadership level, uh, what, what Annette is called filling the donut hole. So what we're finding is manufacturers are reporting these challenges and hiring workers with the operational and management skills to interpret, synthesize, and, and implement those new processes that arise out of this increasingly complex manufacturing environment. Uh, so the um, industrial maintenance technician with the additional certificates and work experience can cover part of these needs, uh, but we're witnessing that the more advanced systems and the managerial level skills uh, do require a four-year applied engineering degree. Uh, so I'm going to, to stop there and I have more information that I can provide during the Q&A. Q I want to make sure we have enough time for that. And, well, thank you, Catherine. I, I also want to publicly thank um, Professor Amy Olstead. She is a professor of practice in industrial systems. Um, and as a professor of practice, she understands everything from plant layout uh, to the workforce. Um, and the research we've done um, has benefited greatly because of Amy's students. Uh, some of this research has been OSU um, seniors in, in engineering uh, with great insight as to how plants work. So Amy, thank you very much. Um, and uh, the other thing that's so important is that uh, because of Catherine's skills and listening to the customer um, is that we've got a sector led response to these workforce needs rolling out through the regional campuses with the BSET. It's, it's a Bachelor of Science of Engineering Technology. I just want everyone to call it best, get it over with, um, because um, this really is, is, is um, uh, Thailand uh, question is, is a way to, to retrain engi train engineers to be broad problem solvers. So um, there was also another comment question about uh, uh, the slot I used about Ford it being um, operations technology 2.0. I want to make it clear that was Ford when Henry for Henry the first was running it in 1920. Um, that Ford right now is is really um, has all operations 3.0 to 5.0 uh, 
uh, in their system. So at this point, I'm gonna turn it over to Jay uh, to devote the little bit of time that I have uh, left uh, to any other questions that may be um, showing up um, for the panel. Yeah, as we uh, you know, give the, the attendees a few minutes here to fire in any last minute uh, questions and answers, I did have one uh, myself as you were, Ned, it kind of triggered as you were talking and then into John and the other panelists as it was coming up. Um, you know, I didn't hear a lot of buzzwords, uh, shouldn't even call them buzzwords, but you know, mention of artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, within the digital enterprise. I mean, it's sprinkled throughout a lot of the, the comments in there. One of the things that I'm curious about, um, I've seen data where um, numbers as high as 89, 90% of all organizations implementing some form of, of AI machine learning, you know, cognitive uh, elements into the, their organizations. Um, when I hear that, and I hear some of the things that you're, that you're talking about with the threats, especially the ITOT, uh, cultural uh, issues and things, I, I start to think about that cultural integration. And this mm -hmm. even gets into the training that Alton brought up and, and Catherine addressed. You know, I, I wonder, are we, are our companies, especially manufacturing, what's your, your feelings on the capability of these companies to go through this cultural transformation to where they can start to adapt into this cognitive space, get good, clean data, not have bias of, of problem solving that data with existing teams, et cetera, you know, and just balancing all that. Do, do you all have any, any thoughts? And again, this starts with Ned, but it kind of trickles through the whole panel. Well, actually, I'm going to kick that question first to John and then to Nate. Oh, I thought I was going to get a pass on that one. I think, <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> um, all I'll say is, um, if you think like to, to scheduling systems in, in manufacturing that have been around for years, automated scheduling systems and people responding to some black box thing that tells them what to do. It's our, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, there's already a lot of ability or, or a lot of companies are, a lot of managers are already used to kind of responding to what the machine tells them to do. So if the machine gets smarter and gets better, right. it, it seems like it's manageable, but I don't have too much firsthand experience in operations uh, with this. So I, I'll stop. I won't take any more. Nate. All right, Nate. <laughs> I think that's a great, great question and a great opportunity. We, we scientists, we like to, we like the data. So we, you know, we, we would instrument every knit and knack of every piece of equipment if we could. But when you walk out to the shop floor and talk to the gentleman or man or woman that's running the machine, they tell you when it sounds like this, it's a bad part. When it feels like that, it's a good part. Those are those are the things that if you're gonna if you're gonna pick the thing to to instrument first and you're going to pick the data to evaluate first and try to try to put machine learning and AI in, use the tacit knowledge from these people who have been running the equipment yeah. for 20, 30, 40 years. The eggheads are like to, let me instrument everything, right? I'll, I'll spend a million dollars buying sensors. It's not necessarily going to be going to be bad, but it's probably not going to be as good as the person who's run that machine their whole life who just instrumented the pieces that they say are important and collect that data. Yeah. And that's good to hear for the job market perspective, right? Because there's, there's such fear that the AI machine learning is going to push out a lot of uh, a lot of jobs when in reality, the human component is going to be more real than ever. Um, right. We've got a question here uh, coming from coming from Matt Waldo about uh, who's tracking data on a, on adoption of new tech and IP at the firm segment levels in Ohio. 
Um, no, I can answer that one. All right. Nobody. Go. <laughs> and I, I essentially what we're, what I think um, that what the Ohio MEP is doing is they are starting to um, as as they start doing more automation projects and and they're doing their annual survey. That's going to start showing up in the Ohio MEP survey. Um, the real challenge we have is not finding out what's going on with the very big companies. It's finding out what's happening to the closely held small companies. So I think working with um, with our friends at Ohio MEP, some of that will begin to show up. Okay, good. And then um, we've got another question coming in from Glenn um, asking about, you know, is there any particular sectors that you all feel are more at risk and deserve special attention to preserve market share and survive? Um, yes. Um, I think uh, those companies that are in the automotive supply chain yeah. are, are going to be there largely because as you move towards um, an EV, um, the reduction in parts is going to take place. There's going to be a year, large winnowing in the um, tier three supplier network. Um, and I also think that the demands upon track of tracking and tracing is going to just skyrocket. Um, that that's the one that, that, you know, it's kind of the tier three job shop, uh, that, that is, is generic is going to have the toughest spot. John may have a different viewpoint than I do. I would just add it for supplying defense or, or, you know, yeah. any of those is more important, but that's not. And to the second question, I'm excited yeah. about the federal government's plan review. <laughs> yeah, and I, hope, I hope to be. In, I'm I'm trying to get involved uh, if if possible through Sue. Well, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, uh, Ned just mentioned on the the automotive and the EV side that trickles into energy storage and mm -hmm. and battery tech. And the Department of Energy specifically has a grand challenge out there on energy storage, and it's all a lot of it's geared towards that. You know, it's. It's about domestic production and bringing that in. And it, it's unclear to me how all that's going to get connected, uh, but it is critically important and it trickles back into these, these critical supply chains. I, I'm curious to see this, this evolve much faster. I don't know if anybody else has any more insight into all that coming together from the government. I mean, it's definitely a threat and there's movement towards it. I'm just anxious to see it move a little faster, I guess, and get more involved. When Captain and I were doing um, the interviews with companies that started in July, ran through October, uh, what we found is those that supplied defense were probably in the best shape uh, just because uh, yeah. level three cybersecurity has been uh, forced down their throats so they go out of business. They hate it, but it's making them better. Right. Um, we're seeing some of this show up with uh, traceability in food systems. Um, and, um, and I think that aircraft and automotive will get there. The problem we've got is, um, the aircraft OEM, Boeing, as well as Airbus, uh, don't have a lot of demand for the next couple of years. So mm -hmm. that's going to be a problem. Yep. Well, this is great. Um, we're, we're out of time now, uh, but this is, I really want to thank you, Ned, and all of our panelists, uh, Nate, John, Farhang, and Catherine for, uh, Definitely a fascinating and packed discussion. I think could have gone, you know, for an entire uh, afternoon here, and uh, you know, summed up pretty well by one of our attendees, uh, Matt Waldo, said it was like drinking from a fire hose, but in a good way. I mean, <laughs> definitely in a good way. And so, uh, Ned, I don't want to put you on the spot, but is there a possibility that we could provide 
uh, these slides or a sanitized version of these slides uh, because of that fact. No, uh, no, absolutely. This is, we're going to turn the whole deck on over. Okay, um, great. Sanitized version would only um, make it better. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that we're able to have people drink from, from, from a fire hose as long as it's an Ohio made fire hose. Right, right. And then um, I'm trying to share my screen here again. Um, let me share here. So hopefully everybody's seeing this. Uh, just to uh, uh, recap, uh, today was our fourth installment of, of Materials Week. And we look forward to seeing everyone at additional uh, Materials Week webinars. We have our next one actually tomorrow, uh, February, Friday, February 26th at 3.30 p.m. Uh, that one is on the, the quantum side for all our physicists in the house, uh, exploring new frontiers with programmable quantum systems. And if you uh, can make that great, if not, there's a few more uh, here in our series that we hope you catch. And we just look forward to seeing you all then. Thanks everybody.